Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 27, The Buddhist Wheel of Life, part two. Notice that this particular thing is a, a wheel divided, and at the centre it contains the material we've been dealing with last time. If you look at the illustrations in the different sections, you will find that they correspond with the gods, the hellish beings, titans, etc. And if you periodically look at this diagram, it will help you to see how terribly difficult symbolism can be. But you'll observe that it is a wheel, and that gripping this wheel, there's a rather horrible demonic-looking figure who is clutching and chewing at this wheel. Now this is to symbolize that the appetite of the German-type Ungrund is busy chewing this wheel of existence. In other words, the whole of existence is actually being eaten by some primary appetite represented by this demonic figure. All time consumes its own products. Time eats his children. It is represented here with this demonic figure. I'm going to say more or less what these particular symbols mean. And we've done the central bit, and we've done the six-fold bit, and we were going to talk about the twelve-fold division which is the outer part of that same diagram. And there's a very peculiar dialectical relation between them. You saw that in the case of the six sectors that we did, that the gods were opposed to the beings in hell. They had one thing in common. They were actually repeating something. The gods were repeating their enjoyment, and the hellish beings were repeating their punishment. In the case of the Titans, they were opposed by the animals. And again, they are driven. The animals are driven by pleasure pain towards sense objects. The Titans are driven by the will to power, but in the same world. They want to acquire the power, the material possessions, the signs of power, which they think the gods have, and therefore they use all their energy to acquire those things which to the animals are a matter of instinct. The titan going for these <coughs> with the consciousness of an egoic individual. The human beings were opposed by the hungry spirits, the impotent hungry spirits, and the human beings had a hunger, like these kretas or hungry spirits, but the human beings were characterized by pride whereby they concealed their <coughs> hunger. The only difference between the human beings, or mankind, and these impotent, hungry spirits is that the type of being mankind can manage to obscure, to hide their hunger under manifestations of pride in their humanity. Now, we're going to go on to the Twelve and see a peculiar symbolism, which is very subtle. At the top here, number one, there is a blind woman. And 
when a symbol is used concretely in this manner, it can have many levels of interpretation. Now, in all the religious scriptures, based on the source literature from which the Judaic tradition comes, woman refers to the non-intellective side of being, and man to the intellective. Man, the male, is an intellectual being with a power of initiative based on his intellection. The woman is a volitional being with an emotive bias and a materialistic orientation. The man is orientated into the world of mathematics and geometry and logic. The woman is orientated into the material world, the material world, the world of the mother, and therefore, in religious work, in the major religions of the world, when it refers to a woman, it is referring to a non-intellective something. And therefore, the blind woman here signifies a non-intellectual co-native drive. It is an infinite power. It is a substantial aspect of reality, which in its spiritual aspect is perfect self-illumination. So the blindness of this woman is really the blindness of a basic universal drive <coughs> that is refusing intellectual formulation because it is determined not to be cornered <coughs> by any kind of logic. It is pursuing a certain end, driving towards it, but it is not doing so by logic. Therefore, it is represented here as a blind woman. The word there in the original, Avidya, we can translate not as ignorance, as the scholars do, because ignorance means a willful disregard of some object. We're translating it as nescience, as simply not knowing in any specific sense. Those of you who are married, I mean, the men who are married will understand what it means to have this kind of emotive disregard for the logic that husbands produce. There was a, a drawing on one occasion in Punch of a, a woman saying to her husband, I am not going to be diverted by mere fact. <laughs> and this, this is exactly what is signified by this blind woman. But this blind woman is power. Remember, all power basically is sentient. That is, it feels itself. It feels its own movement. <coughs> it is a potential of self-realization. But at this first stage, it has not bound itself. It has not committed itself to any particular form because it feels any particular form to be a limitation on its potential infinite enjoyment. It is seeking not a finite pleasure, but an infinite one. And therefore it continuously keeps on the move, and it is blind because moving without turning round is a continuous conative drive with no object to see. It is blind because it is objectless, and it is objectless because it is committed to infinite movement. The opposite of this is a a scientist dedicated to the consideration 
of a specific type of existence, like a man I know who has studied the stress strains for 45 years of the left foreleg of the common housefly. And he has photographed minutely this particular thing because he has a theory about it. And he has shown some remarkable things about left-footedness in the housefly. Now, this is really quite important because the two presuppose each other. The non-objective, continuous seeking of this blind woman, the seeking without finding, is exactly the opposite of the dedication to one specific form by the male empirical scientist. But in the movement of this blind power, there is an inevitable overlapping, an intersection. The spinning produced by this intersection carries us to the second place where we find a potter, a man busy making pots. Now, the word sanskara here is a word, and it's exactly the same word as samsara, which means the whole of power movement plus the letter K. When we introduce this letter K into this word, it means close it up. Therefore, the symbol of the potter here means a power that is making containers. Now, if it weren't for these containers, there would be no pluralization of appetites. The drive of the blind woman would be infinite and eternally unsatisfying because being infinite, it cannot in its movement come to a turn and therefore it cannot fill itself. But when in the overlapping of the movements of this blind woman, in the intersection of the forces, which she represents, there arises spinning, then each one of these zones of spin, a vortex, creates a little sphere, which is just like one of the amphoras dug up in the Byzantine boat last night, for those who are watching. And therefore the second one shows formation and pluralization of forms, so there's a multitude of vehicles of the blind woman are produced. So now we have to imagine that the blind woman, through her own blindness, has, through her own non-seeing movement, met herself, been forced by her non-observation, her non-science, to observe things that she is not looking for, namely finite forms. When infinite forces move, because they're infinite, they're not to any specific direction, the result is that they produce within themselves zones of intersection, zones of spin, vortices, ensphering processes. Each one of these is a pot, container, a vehicle for the same blind woman. As we go around, we will see how we add each one that we have dealt with to the next one to explain it. Now, this wheel is a wheel of dependent origination. It is not a western causal concept of the temporal order in which one thing earlier in time has caused another thing later in time, like uh, the shunting of railway carriages, where one of them is bumped by the engine and bumps the next one and so on, down the line. <coughs> this is such that you can start at any section of the wheel 
And if you try to define it, you will have to define all of it. Any part of it is presupposed in all of it, and all of it is presupposed in any part of it. You know that in the case of chemical elements, which were pursued for a long time by the scientists as ultimate simples, the combination of which would produce the universe, but when they found these chemical elements in the atomic scale, these elements have a peculiar bias, a valency tendency, a tendency to join with other elements. And this presupposes that these apparent simples are being bound together by invisible forces. Now the invisible forces of the whole are, by their movement, producing ultimately these so-called material particles, simply as centers of reference. You cannot understand carbon unless you understand all the valences of carbon. You must see how carbon, added to other things, produces various compounds and ultimately organic forms. And therefore, when you are considering any one of these, it is necessary to remember all that you have already thought of all the others and continuously to define any one in terms of the eleven amas or the other eleven. The potter, therefore, is nothing but the motion of the blind woman which, through its non-observation of where it is going, through its infinite motion, must cross itself and in its crossing produce vortices, spheres containing processes. And this is the potter. Potter itself implies that this power has become embodied in the terra, in the earth, by this rotating process. Now, if we imagine, once these vortices or spheres have been produced by the dynamic rotation of the energy of this blind primary cognitive drive, then we have to deliberately postulate space, which is power, not the dark, cold, empty Copernican space, real space, which is called power, spinning throughout itself, so that death as the wind, if you watch its evidence on the waves of the sea, will show you that it blows in little puffs. It doesn't blow on a straight line front. It blows in little spherical puffs. In other words, it is making spheres which is rolling as it's going along. And each little zone in sphering produced by this blind coronation within the infinite is considered from its formative aspect the potter. So that when we're talking about the potter, the principle of the production of finite containers, spheres of influence, or finite beings, we are simply talking about the blind woman producing unavoidably these ensphering processes, these vortices. Now, we want to consider how the potter becomes the monkey. The blind woman who gave birth to the potter the potter who modelled the monkey. If we imagine space, which is sentient power, to be spinning, making spheres everywhere, and each one of these spheres is, by its rotation, relatively separated from all the other spheres, then this apparently separated sphere 
is a monkey. The monkey is the key to man. It is the evaluator, the consciousness, the sentience, insofar as it is locked up inside one of these spheres. Now, the term Vijnana here for the monkey, which the scholars translate consciousness without defining the word adequately, really means that sentience within one of these spheres, because it is ensphered, is being stimulated from all round itself, in the six directions, north, south, east, west, up and down, and in the process it is being presented with stimuli from other spheres. And it is therefore continuously looking about for the source of the stimulus. And the only way we know as finite beings that there are other beings is because we do not initiate every change that occurs in our body. If you think very carefully about this, and you think to yourself, there is a noise coming from somewhere in this room. Now, I feel that I am responsible at this moment for this particular noise. And the only evidence you have that this noise is coming from me is that you are not initiating it. And therefore, because you are not initiating this noise, you postulate another being as cause. So that this stimulus which arises in your consciousness and which you have not initiated is your sole evidence that there is an external world. And therefore it is the cause of you believing that there is an observer and an observed and that the two are not identical. This makes it that the monkey sees two men in a boat. Now the two men in a boat Nama Rupa is the term. Nama means name. Rupa means form. Nama is the actual movement within your substance which happens in this dual situation and the movement within your substance when you listen to it. You call that a naming process. It is an actual movement of your substance that you listen to when you are thinking. And that form which arises in consciousness from the movement of your substance which is the naming process is always correspondent with the name so if I say the word pyramid and the word sphere then you get two different images coming in your mind an empiricist might say this is a product of your education but if we go back historically it won't matter because the educator is the stimulus situation. The first man who shouted pyramid when they saw shapes sticking out like that did so as a spontaneous reaction to a stimulus caused by a form like that. What they saw and the emotive response to what they saw were always correspondent. Some words are obvious. The feet words, splash, bang, wallop and so on. These words tell you that a given thing perceived or experienced, has a correspondent emotional response which coming out through the vocal organs expresses itself as a word. The result is that the collection of names inside you and the collection of forms you believe to be outside you because you didn't initiate them 
allow you to divide the world into psyche, soma, into soul and body. Psyche, soul, soma, the body. And therefore, because you feel your own sentience inside your skin, because you are identified with the processes inside your skin, and you talk to yourself inside your skin, and the words that you use inside your skin seem to you to be your own products. But when you say boat, when you say man, when you say monkey, something arises in your consciousness from these names, and you believe that these names are inside you. They are mental processes, and they don't appear to be causatively connected with the boats, with the monkeys, with the men, outside your skin, and yet there is a correspondence. <coughs> and this fact leads you to believe that you have a physical body separate from your own psyche. As you do not initiate certain of the changes that occurred in your consciousness, you attribute these changes to beings beyond your consciousness, and you have a central consciousness of your own to which you can turn, and inside which, if you practice, you can isolate yourself and concentrate with two radios on and a dear friend explaining a very interesting thing to you in which you have no interest. You can actually gather yourself together, you can smile and say yes, yes, no, no, in the right places, it's marvelous stuff, a substance of the psyche. You can conduct several conversations simultaneously with the interest in the right places and not hear anything at all because you've been very busy watching out of the corner of your eye that fascinating BBC2 crossword puzzle. <laughs> now, this means that your two lives, your apparent body life and your apparent psychic life, are simply the product of the potter of vertical spinning within this primary universal conative drive. So, two men in a boat, the boat is your being, which in its grossest manifestation is your physical body, and the two men are the two conceptual consciousnesses that you have. One of your consciousnesses you call the sensational one, the sensuous one, and this is the one that makes you think there are things outside yourself. And the other one is the one that you think, internally, is your real self as opposed to other self. You think you are a soul, you think you have a body, and you think there are other bodies outside you, and which by inference have souls. And all this is caused by the sanskaric activity of vertical spin, or the potter. So the dualism of the inner and outer self arises from these two men in a boat. Now the two men in a boat, of course, as they're in a boat all the time, it has to be a houseboat. So they have built this house within the body boat, and they have drilled <coughs> holes so they can watch the external world. And these holes are the five senses and a special one called common sense meaning the sense that is common to the five. So in the house with the six windows, what is referred to are the five sense organs plus that unifying something which is called common sense. Now this house with the six windows is brought into being 
By this part of process, having isolated zones of space, remember space is sentient power, and within each zone, the mental process, the monkey, has been under stimulation, and through the stimulation has given rise to a belief that there is differentiation between the psyche, the observer, and the soma, the observed. And because it believes there are external beings, it has drilled holes in its own being to peep out of and see what is going on. So the sense organs are actually movements from within to meet the external stimulus. If you examine the eye, you will find that the eye has been built by light. The sun has created the eye. Sound has created the ear. Perfumes have created the nose, and so on. Each sense organ has been created by the necessity of dealing with certain orders of stimuli coming in. <coughs> and therefore this sadaya, <coughs> this word means being intersection continuously. This word, which is referred to as the creation of the six sense organs, really means beings interfering with each other continuously. And those things which you do not initiate alarm you, and you grow your sense organs in order to peep and see what is there. So the sense organs have a peculiar duality, because stimuli have a duality. Some of them are assimilable and therefore pleasurable, and some are not assimilable and therefore painful, and therefore your sense organs are on the alert to discriminate between present and unpleasant stimuli. The same nostrils that can fly with delight can also screw up when they get the wrong kind of perfume. The same eyes that can open with delight at a beautiful picture can narrow critically if they don't like what they see. So there's a dualism in the sense organs themselves. Now, in the sixth position here, there are a pair of lovers. Kind of thing about this symbolism, it is made difficult on purpose. If we were to run around this circle with the full meaning of what these things mean, it would be so logical in its development, the mind would say yes, 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 all the way round, would recognize it and dismiss it, because it would understand it perfectly. And therefore, the symbols are made quite difficult so that we can actually work hard to get hold of it. If we say, uh, let the sound one be used to represent anything that can be circumscribed in the circle, call it unity, and then the same sound uttered again, another one, and the sound two shall be considered equivalent to one plus one. Then if I say twice one or two, the head nods, and says, simple, so what? And dismisses it. Everything that the being comprehends too quickly, it throws away. Only that comprehended with difficulty is retained. And therefore the symbolism is made difficult. Women understand this more than men. They understand that if they are too easy to get, they will be dismissed. We won't go into the psychological causes for that, but if a girl falls in love with a boy and says to him first time, I am in love with you, I will go anywhere with you in the world, you care to say. I am yours forever, you may put your jet boots in my upturned human face, 
and it won't turn me away, then this boy will interpret. Well, I'll have a look around elsewhere first, because that one is fixed. <laughs> and this is a tendency in sentient power. That which it knows, it dismisses. Let's remember that. So here, a pair of lovers is used to represent sparsa, which means contact. Now, when contact occurs between A and B, then there is stimulation of A by B and B by A. So, the pair of lovers here really means stimulation. Let's go back a moment to look at the logic of this. We have an infinite blind urge. It is blind because there is nothing to see. If you look at the word blind and look at the word lin in it, and the word linen and such like words, including Lincolnshire, even Lancashire by itself, the thing means weaving. Imagine infinite powers of weaving continuously. And that these peculiar weavings are themselves power, threads, and all the threads are self-moving. They're not moved by something other than themselves, like material threads are moved by a blind weaving woman. These very threads are sentient power, and they are searching, they are moving themselves. So we have this infinite self-weaving power, and in its weaving is at every intersection point, creating spin. <coughs> this spinning is the potter, the finite container, the ensphering. This potter encloses sentient power, thus produces a finite mind, the monkey, which finite mind, because it is finite, is stimulated from all around it by an infinity of stimuli, and thus its consciousness is split by the stimuli into bits, so that the monkey is hopping about all the time, under the influence of the stimuli. A person who is unintegrated is at the mercy of the stimuli that comes. When Carl Jung talks about individuation in its fullest sense as the highest aim of universal consciousness, then he is referring to this fact that until you integrate all the elements of your being, you are at the mercy of the stimuli that come to you. This is quite logical. The weaving of sentient power, self-interfering makes the potter, each little pot or sphere produced is a monkey, each little monkey, because stimulated from outside, gives rise to the concept, two men in a boat, psyche, soma, my inner processes, and that which is beyond, the limit of this, between <coughs> the skin surface of my body. This makes me drill holes in my body. Those of you who have enough time to just go through, through the uh, morphology of a, a developing human being from the <coughs> will be completely fascinated by the way the sense organs are actually grown from within this being outwards to meet their stimuli. The sense organs are produced and there is contact between the external world and the sense organ. And this is represented as lovers. And the lovers are quite simple really, because the, the lovers are simply the inside and outside of this sphere which the potter has created. That is, your psyche is a lover. What he loves is total reality outside himself. 
so that he has a tendency to extend his understanding, his power, his grasp of reality beyond himself. He is loving the world. Simultaneously, the world is loving him because he is a center of integration possibility. All the energy going out from an individual human being into the world, his pleasures and pains, his likings and dislikings, his graspings and failings, the rejection that he undergoes, all these things are simply the relation between two lovers, yourself within your skin and the universal beyond your skin. Your interest in the world is exactly equivalent to the world's interest in you. All the world loves a lover. You are a center of potential integration and the world is a potential of individual experience. The two presuppose each other. See here, there's no question of priority of universe over individual or individual over universe. These two come into being simultaneously. The skin comes into being as a result of the play of forces from any center to the space around it. And therefore, six, the lovers. The number six means here sex, and therefore the lovers. You'll see over there later another function of sexual union. <coughs> but here it means the contact of your sense organs with the external world and the contact of the external world with you as an individual point of reaction. The biggest error of empirical science is to believe that an empirical scientist is attacking the universe to discover its secret and that the universe is not attacking him to make him discover its secret. Those who realize that the universe is actually attacking man to make man individuate to make man integrate so that man can understand the universe because only through man can the universe understand itself. There must be a center of individuation, of integration in order that the universal energy can focus and concentrate itself and from that point of individual integrated consciousness look back at the universe and realize itself. This is why in Christian theology Man is created a little lower than the angels. The angels are archetypal forms. But is destined to be higher because the angels are separated from each other logically according to categories. And one angel cannot become an angel of another category. Thus intellectual elements cannot become affective elements. Affective elements, feelings, likings, dislikings, are not conative drives. These three are different and one cannot become the other. So there are angels of the intellectual hierarchy, angels or archetypes of the affective emotive hierarchy, angels of the conative power drive hierarchy. And these angels cannot get out of their category. But a human being can get hold of all the angels from the three hierarchies and by work individuate and integrate in himself so that he is then better than the angels. This caused quite a lot of jealousy in heaven at one time and the reverberation produced some of our best philosophical arguments. Now, once we've got the contact, we go down here to seven, there is an arrow in a man's eye, the word Vedana here, 
means a continuous process of affective response. That is to say that when a stimulus comes to you, you can either assimilate it at an appropriate rate and like it, or you cannot, and to that degree you dislike it. But if you like this thing, you have a preference. And this preference is that something shall be present with you, or, if it's unassimilable, that it shall be absent from you. So the arrow in the man's eye means the wound that arises logically from the contact of yourself with your external universe. Now this wound, this affect, this liking, disliking, passes into the next phase represented by a drinker served by a woman. Remember these symbols are not just fabricated to make the thing look nice and romantically interesting. They have meaning. Woman refers to the co-native and affective side of nature and man to the intellective. And in this eighth position there is Krishna which is first and it is a desire that that pleasant affect, that pleasant emotion shall be re-experienced. And it is served by a woman. That means that once the affection is roused in you, your own non-intellective side, that is your female side, will want to repeat this pleasant stimulus. So that you, the male, the drinker, the differentiator, the selector, are being fed by your own co-native emotive non-intellective side. And this automatically produces the grasping at the fruit. That is to say, if the thing is pleasant enough for you, not only do you want to re-experience it, but you want to guarantee that you can re-experience it, and therefore you wish to possess it. Again, it follows quite logically from the contact of the senses, an affective response, I like, dislike, I move towards the likes, I would like to have them again, and to guarantee I have them again, I would like to own them. And this brings us to the picture showing sexual union of a man and a woman. Now, the Bhava becoming here a union of the man and the object that he decides to appropriate. This man wants to own the source object that will allow him to repeat his pleasant experience. And in so doing, he comes into union with that object. If we were to interpret that this pair of lovers and this sexual union over here simply refers to the sexual activity of a man and a woman in the world, it's the most external interpretation, it wouldn't mean very much to us. It would simply be an illustration of something that's going on but it wouldn't tell us what to do about it. But here it says to us quite simply that this Bahama, this becoming, this being development arises because the desire for repetition of the pleasant stimulus has produced a possessive appropriation of the object and the man then becomes unified with his object. This is a man in any field of activity at all who, seeking a position that will give him the power to repeat this pleasant feeling 
actually becomes one with his activity. A man who is identified with any kind of institution, structure, organization, church, state, whatever it is that he gives himself to, so that he can no longer separate himself from that being, this is represented by the sexual union. Now, from the union of this man with his object, which he now owns, there emerges another one. The woman giving birth, Jati, throwing out to try to objectify, to establish a dynasty, to say that because I have got this object, and this object is so terribly valuable, I must make children to take my place at my desk from which I give out the orders that guarantee that I will retain my hold on this desirable object. <coughs> and the development of his organization, his organization developed beyond its original, is his child. From the business point of view, it is subsidiary organizations which spread throughout the world as children of a parent organization. And the man who is so identified is living and extending his energy <coughs> in this way. From the point of view of material existence, at the physiological level, the sexual union produces a physiological child. And this child is the objective projection through time and space of the intent of the parents to perpetuate their affective enjoyment of that object to which they first attach themselves. We see this most obviously in the great ruling houses of the world from Babylonia, India, Egypt, Greece, Rome to our own day that families who have by effort, by will, by intelligence, by cunning, by whatever means have established an objective hold on a power situation like to transfer this to their children, the hereditary monarchies and so on, because they are identified with the issue of their own being. <coughs> and therefore, they give birth. The big organization gives birth to smaller organizations. The great empire has colonies. The great business has subsidiaries. And the man woman, in their relation, bring forth a physical child. And once a finiting process has brought itself to its term, and there is a natural term, an end, beyond which any given form cannot be developed, when this end is reached, then the necessity of death arises. Because one cannot be released from a thing into which one has put one's energy other than by taking that energy out. <coughs> and if the energy put into it is too great, the being has not sufficient energy to pull himself out of it. And therefore his energy is committed to it as long as that form <coughs> will function and pay back in this sort affect, this sort feeling, this sort emotion. And therefore, the necessity for the destruction of the object. Without the destruction of the object, 
that identified psyche cannot be released. <coughs> Imagine a man who was a king by his own effort in a little valley in the Middle East. Supposing nobody had invaded his valley and he never went outside because he didn't want to know. He had all his pleasures inside this valley. And he was surrounded, if you like, at the Shangri-La story, he was surrounded with a protective ring of mountains. Nobody knew he was there. Cut off from the external stimulus of the world, enjoying himself in his established pattern, he would be fixed. And within that centre could not change his behaviour once he had reached a logical term of its development. He would be pinned. And when any civilization has reached this end, then luckily, historically, there have always been some other beings outside that enclosed situation, outside the Euphrates-Tigris Valley situation, who have rushed in and knocked over all the buildings, captured all the ladies and removed them to another country, and killed, for his own sake, the unfortunate monarch who had become identified. And therefore, death is a necessity of release for an identified being. Now, there is no death other than identification. The infinite sentient power is infinite life. And death means division, means separation. It is the potter, the creation of the vortex, which lays the foundation of the necessity of the death. The identification creates the necessity of the breaking of the identification. And therefore this word death here, Marana, means no more this, that the substance, which is the blind woman, shall continuously differentiate. It is doing this all the time and producing by its potting activity continuous zones of possible identification and these zones of identification continuously produced are local deaths. A cancer in the body generally is a number of cells that for a certain reason to do with subdivision have gone to the term of subdivision beyond which they cannot go and then started to fuse together again and in so doing they have broken outside the control of certain parts of the organism so that they are now autonomous beings within the being. They eat your food, steal your nourishment and grow without integration of function with the rest of your body. So in the same way this death only means that locally there is identification and a refusal to integrate function with the environment. There is no other death. Now, when we come around here logically, we see that it is really a very simple thing. If we go around it very quickly, we can dismiss it. Universal energy, by its processes, formulates the pluralization of formulation produces individual minds locked inside their bodies. This locked mind inside the bodies has a dual aspect, the inner <coughs> psyche, the outer soma. This necessitates the drilling of portals in order to see the external world, 
This results in the contact of the external world and the sense organs. This results in the arising of feelings, I like it, I dislike it. This results in preference, thirst, for certain experiences. This results in grasping, possessive, appropriation, in order to repeat these things. This results in the binding of the man and the object. This results in giving birth along the line of development of that object to its term. And this reaching the term is the necessity of death. If we say it very quickly like that, we can say, that's how it is, quite easy. We've understood that, and then we can go on, forget about it. Hence the difficulty. Difficulty introduced on purpose to make you realise what it means. Now, it is arranged in this way, round in this manner, not accidentally in pairs of opposites. Just as there was a real opposition between the gods and the beings in hell, both ignoring something, the gods were ignoring the finite nature of their heaven, and the beings in the hells were ignoring the possibility of escape from hell. So, when we look at these twelve, they are also related. There is a blind woman, and there is an arrow in a man's eye. The blind woman, by her movements, has produced a situation in which it is possible for a man to be hit in the eye, that is, to be made to see, dialectically, the blindness begets the vision, the wounding of the man, the arising of the feeling in him, I must see more clearly to get what I want, is the dialectical product of the blindness of the original primary conation. Now, the potter here, formation, has produced a woman holding one of these pots, that is his will, in order to drink out of it. There's a real relation between the opposite concepts. Unless we make pots, we cannot hold our lemonade in them. If we can't do that, we can't drink. So the formative process here is a precondition of the possibility of drinking. That is, of taking from one zone and putting into another zone. Each zone can then specialise in a certain kind of self-being, and in specialising is depriving itself of something else that it might have. To specialise is to deprive yourself of an infinity of other possibilities, and thus to create an appetite for what you are not. And this potter, therefore, begets the situation where you can have a thirst. There's a real meaning in the opposition. Now, the monkey, the closing of the mind, the finiting of the mind, makes possible the appropriation of things to add to this mind. Again, it is not accidental that this mind reacting to stimuli from all around itself is watching pleasure pain, pleasure pain, and reaching out and grasping those things that give the pleasure and appropriating to itself all those pleasurables, and therefore pushing away those things that are not logically consistent with the things it wants. The monkey begets in this way. The two men in the boat, the psychic soma, beget the possibility of this union. Now we see here a very subtle thing, but a very valuable inversion of polarity is possible. The man and his own being can be considered as man-woman, in which your physical body, your material self, can be viewed as female because it is full of non-intellectualized tendencies. 
The body is full of urges, not yet intellectualized. Your intellect is masculine to your body. Therefore, the two men in the boat, Saifi Soma, by means of names and forms, can produce a new kind of unity. The unity of a man, a psyche, with his own being, his soma. And this is the one that's most important in all religious teachings, that a man shall come to terms with his opposite pole. Now, in certain psychologies, Jungian psychology is fairly obvious, there is a fairly clear statement that a man has to come to terms with his opposite pole. That the male must come to terms with his femaleness, the femaleness with the maleness. That there is not enough clarification that your femaleness is your physical body and your maleness is your pure logic. Your physical body is full of wants, urges, desires, aversions, it likes and dislikes, some things it thinks are comfortable and some are not, and it tends to move towards the comfortable and away from those that are not. In other words, your physical body acts just like a woman. It wants what it wants when it wants it. And your pure logic inside has the job of bringing this woman into subjection to its authority. The man that cannot control his own physical needs for comfort and pleasure cannot control the woman. The opposition spirit and body is exactly the same as the opposition woman-man. When St. Paul said Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman, Christ was the personification of logos, cosmic reason. The man who can see a purely mathematical, geometrical, logical proposition is really male. The man who can make his body obey that logic is a hermaphrodite. This is the kind of hermaphrodite that Christ is talking about. When you can make your physical body obey the logic that you know is applicable in that situation. That is the real hermaphroditic state. <coughs> now, again, the house with the six windows gives birth. Because when we look outside through our sense organs, we actually give birth psychologically to our own interests. We don't ordinarily notice this fact that we are already equipped with tendencies from our ancestors to go into the world and interpret it to give birth to interest, to put that interest upon an object and to see that object as desirable and not know that we have made it desirable. We have given birth to an interest. Birth means thrust it out of that house, out of that being. When you look upon a thing and select it and say, that's worth attention, that's worth more attention, that's worth slightly less attention, and so on, looking at beings and things, antiques, or whatever you've got, when you are doing this and believing that you are seeing value in things, if you forget that the value you see is only the value you have yourself fabricated, self here equals your ancestral protoplasmic experiences, and thrown into the outer world, until you realize this, you are at the mercy of your own formulations. 
you are giving birth to evaluations. And every evaluation that you make in this way ties you. You predict your values. You decide what is good, bad and indifferent in the world. You energize your body to go and get it. You project your interest and fasten yourself in the process of this projection upon some specific being in the time-matter world. And thereby you precipitate here the man with the corpse. Every pair of lovers in the finite world putting their arms round each other each is putting his her arms round the corpse. When you get married, if you don't die simultaneously, one of you will have to bury the other. <laughs> Unless you leave it to the corporation. <laughs> and we see here that there's a very interesting kind of dialectical process. There is also a relation in that a certain area is allotted to the gods, to the titans, pretas, hell beings, animals and men. Now, if you look at your diagram and meditate upon those facts, you will find that there's a very intimate relationship between the beings that we discuss in the six sectors, each one of which covers two zones of the twelve. And therein is a very good meditation. Do not think that it is accidental that these things are placed in this way. They are placed there by a consciousness which sees the whole thing. It is not a thing worked out empirically from the sense world. It is a thing that is projected from whole consciousness. The symbolism of a wheel like this, the symbolism of the Christian trinity, of the Timothy of the Hindus, or any of the great religious concepts, is not something arrived at by a man empirically building from the ground. It is something that the whole consciousness sees and precipitates, and then the empirical ego, your little individual self, can meditate upon that precipitated form in order to develop itself back to the consciousness of its source. Say how uh, characters were connected um, in the circle, and you were saying how they formed a complete circuit. You didn't explain the connection between the man with the corpse and the blind woman. Could you please? The reason I didn't do that, of course, is because we'd have had to go around again. <laughs> <laughs> the connection, actually, as we've said before, this is a wheel, not of a serial causation. Not where one thing in front of another in time causes a following one, but the whole wheel itself is power, sentient power. This wheel is a real existential wheel <coughs> within each individual and within the universe <coughs> as a whole. So the connection between this man and the corpse, between the man and his own body, between life and death, is that after going round, and by this process of identification with a finite object, necessitating the destruction of the object, as in the case of a physical body, when you get this body, you've got it after hard work in choosing. When you develop it, you choose the mode of its development. 
And when you reach the term of its activity, so that you consider yourself sufficiently frustrated by it, to realize that it cannot fulfill your intent in the way you hoped it would, then you vacate it. Actual physical death is not caused by disease. It is caused by people vacating bodies with a sufficient number of impediments in them to make it not worthwhile to remain in them. Some people give up the body with no physical symptoms. X-rays find nothing and these people die. Some people persist for years with the most terrible diseases because... Did somebody laugh then? Yes, I did. I certainly thought of a few. <laughs> and well, they have a motive, actually, for persisting. But the actual immediate cause of death is quite simple. It is vacating the vehicle because the psyche inside it has now conceived it to have reached its term. Identification is death. And the death of the body with which one is identified is the precondition of the release of the consciousness from the specific form to which it has committed itself. <coughs> so when we come to the man with the corpse, remember the corpse is simply your body. The man, man means evaluator, the man is the psyche. The psyche is carrying the body with it. You are carrying death about with you as long as you have a physical body. And when you get fed up with the limitations imposed upon you by this body, then you give it up, and this is death. Now, the consciousness, in going round the wheel, going through its experiential cycle, has informed itself, that is, put form by deliberate evaluation within itself of the external situation. It photographs events and objects of the outer world inside itself, and it does this so fast that it hasn't time to pattern them properly. It is always running from moment to moment. There are not many people in the world, because everybody in this room will do what I'm saying, that not many people do, because it's a very special group of people, of course. All the people in this room, when they go to bed at night, they deliberately look at the moment of getting into bed, and then they play the whole of their day's experience backwards <laughs> to when they first woke up. And they will not allow themselves to go to sleep until they've done this as an essential ritual in self-comprehension. But outside this room, of course, people don't do that. <laughs> they just feel tired and go to sleep. <laughs> the result is that ordinary mortals have no real integration. And consequently, when death occurs, when a sufficient number of impedances are accumulated in their physical body so that it's no longer worthwhile remaining in it, then they vacate it. But they take with them in their own subtle body, that is the body of the ideas which have arisen in them as a result of their contact with the external world, the totality of the images of their experience <coughs> constitutes a subtle body, a body of fine energies, ideas, ideas are energies, and all this mass of unintegrated material they have inside themselves after they have let go of the physical body. So now they depart. Symbolically they go to the moon. They sing a certain popular song on the way 
And when they get there, they then proceed in a kind of dream contemplation. And try to sort out and categorize their experiences. <coughs> this period of sorting out the experiences is necessitated because ordinary people haven't time to categorize their daily experiences every night. And consequently, they give up their bodies before they have assimilated their total experience. Excuse me for a moment. There's an Austin car, 96498, and something's trying urgently to get up in the house. means that you go into a state in which your mental content, <coughs> your mind and all its furniture, constitute your body of reference. And because it is all higgledy-piggledy, you are in a kind of dream state in which you watch the parade of your unassimilated, unintegrated experiences passing through consciousness. And as you watch it, you begin to detect the patterning of your choices. You see how one choice led to another, how each choice presupposes radially a lot of others, again, dependent origination. And then, when you have assimilated and categorized the full significance of the totality of your choices during that one life in the physical body, then there arises, as a result of the affinity of your experience, a specific resultant. This is very important. When you've been around that wheel once, it is extremely unlikely that in that one occasion you will have had sufficient interest and energy to disperse over your total experience to see its total significance. And therefore, in one lifetime, you will acquire a specific bias, a resultant of the totality of your experience, which will leave you with less than omniscience. And because you have less than omniscience, after you have categorized and assimilated the experience of that one life, you are biased from your own experience, from your knowledge, your own assessment, to believe that you need some more experience to balance the deficiencies which you have detected. And as soon as this assessment is completed, you then wait with the pattern integrated as far as you've been able to integrate it, and the gaps in it where you have not been able to integrate it, and the resonance of your pattern determines that when a certain situation occurs on earth, then there is a possibility of you completing your education. And then you re-enter at a certain point, the logical development of which will be the path of experience that will fill in the gaps of your prior experience. So the dead person again is a blind woman. That is to say, he's not omniscient. There are still elements in him of unassimilated experience, still elements in him of undetermined directions, still needs, urges, and so on. All these now proceed to fashion again for him. He is now the potter. He is now modeling himself, a new being, modeling a new monkey, a new mind, which he believes will deal adequately with his experience 
in the light of his prior experience. Now he then proceeds to go around the circle again and ordinarily he chooses a finite object, a finite process through which he wishes to go because of the affinity of his prior experience, the affinity of his energy and the, therefore the lack of power to integrate fully the meaning of his experience. As long as he goes round this wheel in a linear manner, <coughs> he will continue to do so. This is the eternal recurrence that frightened many, many philosophers in the ancient world and many in the modern world. Nietzsche was a 19th century exponent of this frightening concept and frightened himself with it. Now, Gautama's analysis of this was that the thirst is the cause of you staying on the wheel and it's only at the point of the thirst can you get yourself out of it. Let's think what happens. You don't know something, but you have an urge to act. Because you don't know, therefore you cannot act other than in a specific formulated manner. You become a potter. Because you have formulated yourself in a certain way, you are a certain type of monkey jumping in a certain way. Your specific mental process is determined by the way you have been patterned from the amount of material you absorbed last time. This monkey, this consciousness responding, splits you again into psyche soma. You believe that you have a physical body. You are not identified with absolute consciousness. You are identified with potted consciousness as a finite mind believing that you have a valid dualism body psyche you look through your sense organs again your six windowed house again you come into contact with the world again you fall in love with some specific finite parts of it again from this contact arises like this light again the thirst and desire to drink again now Gautama's analysis stops at this point Notice it's figure of eight, which is the figure of eternity, infinity, and reciprocal relation. This two-way process. If I thirst, I drink. If I drink, I thirst. There is no curing of fires by throwing coal on them. They do not become smaller by putting coal on Thirst does not become less. It may appear to do so, because if you do something you like doing, if you eat a certain kind of food that you like, for a time, because of the affinity of your stomach, you are stopped from eating it. You call <coughs> yourself full up, satisfied. But when that has been assimilated, because of the enjoyment of the prior occasion, this thing is now stronger. You want more of this thing. So he said, let us cut it out at this point. The next stage is grasping. If we allow this thirst, we will want to own the thing that confers upon us the power of satisfaction. Therefore, kill the thirst and go back quickly. Now, this thirst, this Trishna word, implies a threefold spirit, sentient power, with a serpent cunning in it to get its own way. There is only one way of dealing with it. You cannot deal with it by indulging it. This is Gautama's analysis. And remember, he is an objectification of cosmic logos, just in the same way in the Christian system, Christ is logos, logic. The logic is that when the thirst is there, if you say, I know you, 
If I indulge you, I will increase my tendencies in the same direction, and I am in danger of grasping at the object that confers upon it. And if I do, I will fall into union with it, and then I'll have to die again, and then I will start the round. So if I don't get out of it on the first level, kill the first, then I will not get out at all. Now this is the analysis of Gautama. He was an embodiment of cosmic reason. Christ gives another analysis of it, and he is also an embodiment of cosmic reason. He says, you may go round forever in this way, but if every time you go round, you sharpen your awareness of it, so that you actually see in this thirst what is determinant in the very act of the thirst, quenching, you will be released from it. They're really saying exactly the same thing in two totally opposite ways. One is saying, apparently, give it up, and the other is saying, don't give it up. Look at it. But if you look at it, you will give it up. And if you give it up, you will have to look at it. In the case of the Buddhistic analysis, it is well known in Buddhist theory that Gautama, who rescued himself because of the pain of going round this wheel eternally, when he had extricated himself from it, then he found himself with compassion which he had not got rid of. He knew that all the people involved in this wheel were still suffering and would do so eternally unless they were shown the way out. So although he had got out, he had to come back again. And therefore the ever-reincarnating Buddha. He learned about this, came to the solution, give up thirsting, get out, go to Nirvana. And as soon as he arrived there, he was now again absolute sentient power. Whereupon he re-entered the same wheel with the intent of showing people how to get out of it. But he came into it positively instead of blindly. He now knew the whole wheel positively and came in in exactly the opposite way. Now meditating upon this, the Buddhist philosopher of about 600 years said, this being so, that when the Buddha to rescue himself from his suffering then had to come back into the same suffering cycle because of his compassion which is inherent in being why bother to try to get out? Why not realize that you will come back when you are out of it, out of compassion? Have your compassion here and now and eternally reject your salvation. This is the doctrine of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is a being who says, I will not be rescued because when I am rescued, my compassion will put me back. So I won't be rescued. What I will do is persuade everybody else to be rescued. And I will stay here until they're all rescued. And this is an infinity of them. I'm going <coughs> to be here. Now you can see here the dialectics of it. This wheel presupposes the demon outside holding it. That is to say, the infinite appetite has created the wheel, is holding that wheel in being. The appetite trapped in the wheel that is being held wants to get out and devises a method of getting out, namely, give up wanting to be in. And then it goes back, and it is now the same appetite being that created the wheel. 
And because it is infinite, the wheel is continuously being filled with beans. And therefore, it will re-enter to tell them the way out. Now, this guarantees another circle, if you like, another endless cycle at right angles to the first one. Now, this is very similar to the analysis of Christ and the meaning of the Incarnation, that providing you know that your death, when you get it, is willed, because you are so frustrated, you can then see the possibility of absolute frustration before you start. Now, the only thing that frustrates you before you start is the identification with the finite, your ego self, which by its finite nature, its very limitation, cannot fulfill its infinite appetite. If you try to escape from it, you finish up back in the infinite. So why not live in such a way that you're inside out, outside in, this circle, so that the Bodhisattva concept of the Buddhist and the Christian concept of the incarnated God-man, that is a man who has realized his divine origin, a really identical concept. So when we look at this wheel, if we can look at all these twelve, learn them serially, then see them in pairs of presupposing opposites, and then see the whole of the inside of that wheel as a precipitate of the outside to make an object for the outside to contemplate, and then be outside and inside simultaneously. When you can do this, then you have attained that third stage described by the sages. The sage says, when you're a little baby, you see a tree as a tree. When you're grown up and you become a philosopher, you know that a tree is only a sense phenomenon. It is merely a response of your sense organ to certain orders of stimuli, and you interpret these as tree. But when you have become a sage, you now see that the tree is the tree, as the baby saw. The analysis that the philosopher gave of this tree was simply the intellectual splitting of the psychisoma, the namarupa. The name and the form are really the same. The child sees a certain impression. The physiologist says this is stimulation of some nerves at the back of the eye. That's very clever. The physiologist looking outside, a little older, can still see the tree as a tree. When you see all the trials, all the tribulations, all the impedances that come to you as willed by you, not imposed on you by other beings, as willed by you for your self-realization, then you affirm everything that happens to you as and when it happens. In the Genesis story, Adam and Eve are thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Eden means absolute judgment, no judgment, don't judge. He is told by pure intelligence, do not divide the world into good and evil. Do not eat that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't say this is good and this is bad. But he does this. Adam's will, that is his wife, his drive into externality, is stimulated by nature, the serpent. The result is that he divides the world on the affect, like the arrow in the man's eye, the arrow is the serpent in Genesis. He divides the world into I like it, I don't like it. And thereby, finance his pathway through the world. Now most people are adept at blaming other people for the impedances they encounter. 
But the reality is that in the period between death and rebirth, when patterning the next life in the light of the previous life, that you have chosen the necessary impedances for your enlightenment. You have deliberately gone into all those situations where people are going to contradict you in order to be turned back on yourself, to discover that you and no other being constitute your own destiny. for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.